Hi, I'm Hattie and welcome to episode 3 of Hattie Talks Mathematics. Today, I'm talking about the first female mathematician of whom we have any biographic knowledge or understanding of the mathematics she studied, Hypatia. Just a quick warning that the discussion of her death a bit later is quite violent. In reality, this episode on Hypatia could have featured in any number of series I've already published. History, science, inspirational women. But really, she fits best in this. Not only is she a fascinating person whose contributions to mathematics have sadly been lost to time, but also an interesting example of how modern discriminations have been forced onto the study of ancient history. As I mentioned, due to the time period we're talking about here, a lot of information has been lost to history or is surrounded by question marks due to issues of reliability, as very few primary sources have survived. It is believed that she was born in the late 300s, perhaps 350 or 370 AD, in Alexandria, Egypt, to mathematician father Theon of Alexandria. There is no information as to the true identity of her mother, and it is believed that she may have had a brother named Epiphanius, but he may have just been her father's favourite or best pupil. It's important to consider the context of the period to which she was born. Alexandria was known in the ancient world as the centre of culture and learning, and if you've heard of Alexandria today, you've likely heard of it in the context of the Library of Alexandria, which was destroyed in 48 BC. If you are interested in hearing about the Library of Alexandria in more detail, do go check out episode 4 of series 1 for more. Despite the burning of the Library of Alexandria, much of the museum in which it was housed survived, until it was destroyed in 391 AD under the orders of the Archbishop Theophilus. The last known member of the museum is actually Theon, Hypatia's father. Again, despite all this destruction of intellectual property, Alexandria remained a hub of academic study and culture, and remained as such for most of Hypatia's life. It's believed she studied mathematics under her father, who was one of the leading mathematicians of his generation, and she would end up working alongside her father in his writing of commentaries on important mathematical works of the time. One of the most famous commentaries of Theon, which Hypatia definitely played a role in writing, was his 11-part commentary on Ptolemy's Almagest, a mathematical and astronomical treatise on the motions of the stars and the paths of the planets. She also assisted her father in producing a new version of Euclid's Elements, which after its writing became the basis for all later editions of Euclid commentary. There is some evidence that Hypatia also wrote commentaries alone, i.e. not alongside her father, but the account which details this, Suidas, is not really seen as trustworthy nor believable by modern historians. Unfortunately, as is the nature with this sort of history, most of her commentaries were written on fragile papyrus paper, which are hard to maintain even in the best conditions, without considering the fact that these commentaries and papers have lived through centuries of war, unrest, and frankly, a lack of interest in her work. So in reality, it's amazing we have any primary sources at all. Whilst there's no evidence that Hypatia actually ever undertook any original mathematical research, she still played an important role in the field, and it's important to consider the fact that at this time, in reality, there were significantly fewer original works being published than one might think, with a lot of works being commentaries and analysis and further explanation of traditional mathematical texts. Even the contemporary Christian historian Philostorgius, 368-439 AD, declared that her mathematical work excelled even that of her father, Theon, who had been regarded as the greatest mathematician of his generation. There is also, not to forget, the fact that in 400 AD, she became head of the Platonist school at Alexandria, where she lectured on mathematics and philosophy. She was a Neoplatonist. Neoplatonism was based on the teachings of Plotinus, who taught this idea of having an ultimate reality. Neoplatonists also believed in the existence of a single, all-encompassing, incorporeal entity, which they called the One, or in Greek, Tohen. 
It's largely because of this that in ancient Alexandria, Shusun came to symbolise learning and science, and is even described in the 10th century encyclopaedia of the Mediterranean world, Pseudolexicon, as being in speech articulate and logical, in her actions prudent and public-spirited, and the rest of the city gave her suitable welcome and accorded her special respect. Unfortunately, however, these ideas of science and learning were associated with paganism with many Christians who lived in Alexandria at the time, and the fact that she was a woman who studied and taught certainly didn't help this either. Despite this, many of her pupils were Christian. In fact, the only ones of whom we know their names were all Christians, and many prominent Christians were taught by Hypatia, one of the most famous being Synesius of Cyrene, who later became the Bishop of Ptolemais. Synesius admired Hypatia, and we're very lucky that we're still in many of the letters sent to her by Synesius, in which his reverence for Hypatia's learning and scientific abilities is as clear as day. These letters are also really useful in terms of giving us an understanding of what Hypatia knew and what she taught. One of these things, which the letters reveal, was how to design an astrolabe, a sort of portable astronomical calculator, which was in use all the way up to the 19th century. It was believed for a while, due to misinterpretations of the letter, which described this lesson that Hypatia taught, that she actually invented the astrolabe, but in reality, it was in use for 500 years before she was even born. Now, on to the rather sad side of this story. Unfortunately, when one looks for information on Hypatia online, most of what appears focuses on her death. And although it may have indeed been brutal in its manner, it's almost quite sad how much of her amazing life has been disregarded to instead focus on the nature of her death. And to fully understand it, and appreciate the effect it had on the ancient world, one has to also understand the nature of religion and religious conflict in ancient Alexandria. So, in 412, Cyril of Alexandria, who later became known as St Cyril, became Patriarch of Alexandria, essentially Archbishop of Alexandria. However, a man named Orestes, who was the Roman official who served as prefect of Alexandria, became a bitter rival of Cyril as they both fought for church and state control of the area. Hypatia was a friend of Orestes, and this, alongside prejudice against her philosophical views and teaching position and gender, led to her becoming seen as the focal point of riots between Christians and non-Christians. A few years into this period of high religious tension, in March 415, Hypatia was murdered by a Christian mob. Some say that this mob was a group of monks, whilst others say it was being led by leading religious figure Peter the Lector. Whilst there's no actual proof that Cyril was involved, it's pretty likely that he certainly played some role in her murder. According to one of the main accounts of this event, she was accosted whilst travelling in a carriage, ripped from it and dragged into a church where she was stripped, and proceeded to be beaten to death with ostraca. This can either be translated to roof tiles or oyster shells. They then took her body to a nearby city and burned it. As I said before, her death did have a significant effect on the ancient world. As described in Encyclopaedia Britannica, whatever the precise motivation for the murder, the departure soon afterward of many scholars marked the beginning of the decline of Alexandria as a major centre of ancient learning. And the Smithsonian magazine says, Neither paganism nor scholarship died in Alexandria with Hypatia, but they certainly took a blow. Now, I want to focus on the way that Hypatia has been studied since her life, as, like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's a really interesting look into the way that modern attitudes have clouded our study of ancient history. Much of what has been published about her life is fiction written in the 19th and 20th centuries, and unfortunately, due to the misinterpretation of these texts as fact, there have been many issues with the discovering the truth about Hypatia's life without falling victim to the romanticised, fictionalised stories. The most famous of which being a, supposedly, biographical novel written by American author Albert Hubbard in 1908. In reality, this novel was pretty far from biographical, with Hubbard even attributing quotes to Hypatia, despite having zero evidence for doing so. 
one of which has since become well known for being said by her. Fables should be taught as fables, myths as myths, and miracles as poetic fantasies. To teach superstitions as truth is a most terrible thing. There are also lots of interesting texts considering Hypatia's appearance. Despite having no surviving ancient depictions of her nor any reliable detailed descriptions of her appearance, many have tried to paint her a certain way since her life. For example, in the aforementioned 10th century Mediterranean encyclopedia, Pseudolexicon, she is described as exceedingly beautiful and fair of form. Whilst it is entirely plausible that she really was as extraordinarily beautiful as Pseudolexicon claims, it is also possible that her reputation is simply many centuries of male fantasy. It's not just the aspect of beauty and gender to be considered when looking at depictions of Hypatia, but also race. Many 20th century fictional depictions of her paint her as a white, classically Greek-looking woman, whilst in reality, she likely looked like other Egyptian women at the time, with brown skin and dark hair. Once again, this shows how modern discriminations have affected modern readings of ancient sources and our understanding of ancient historical figures. Anyway, thank you for listening to Hattie Talks. I hope you've enjoyed it and found it informative. This podcast has a new episode published every other Sunday, so keep an eye out. Thanks, and bye for now. Thank you.